Hello and welcome to season five of the Speaker Discovery Series podcast. I'm Laura Champion, your host of the show you're about to listen to and the founder of the Speaker Discovery Series. This is our fifth edition of the Speaker Discovery Series and I couldn't be more excited to present to you this night with the theme of secrets. It was a wonderful evening we had in April in downtown Toronto at the Crows Theatre, and it was a warm, full room of lovely people who were just spilling their beans all over the place with wonderful, open, beautiful secrets. And I'm so, so grateful that all of these speakers and, in fact, a few attendees took the time to share the stories that they had with each other in a, in a space that was caring and accepting and open to one another. I am really, really excited that we are continuing with this series and I really invite every single one of you listeners out there to come join us on September. Uh, the date is just being nailed down now and we're also going to pick up a theme real soon. So keep an eye on Twitter, keep an eye on LinkedIn, keep an eye on this stream. We maybe I'll do an announcement through here to help get you listeners involved. But right now I am just going to throw it to myself uh, where I will be welcoming you to the beautiful Crow's Theater and a night of secrets. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. Welcome. We're here. We did it. Uh, I, I apologize for the late start. The caterer delivered the food to the billing location. Um, so we had a little late start. But thank you and welcome. Uh, I'm very excited. Uh, this is our fifth season uh, of, of this event. So I'm really excited. Uh, I'm so excited to be hosting again. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Laura Champion. I'm a fundraising strategist at Blakely, who is the wonderful sponsor for tonight's event. So thank you, Blakely. Um, before we get started, I'm going to ask uh, Scott, uh, one of my committee members, to join me to do a quick land acknowledgement. Hi, everybody. The Speaker Discovery Series Committee of the AFP Greater Toronto Chapter wants to acknowledge the ancestral traditional territories of the Ojibwe, Nishinaabe, and the Mississaugas of New Credit, whose territory we are gathering on today, which is still home to many Indigenous peoples. We are grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. Thank you, Scott. So thank you, beautiful audience, uh, for being here tonight. Um, tonight is, uh, as always, and I'm going to give the quick spiel for those who are here for the first time, uh, a culmination of a vision that I had uh, almost two years ago now. Um, and it's always so exciting to be on this stage with new speakers. Um, tonight's the first time we've come east. Woo, east. Uh, and uh, isn't it a wonderful venue? I'm so excited to be here at the, the Crow's Nest. So thank you for having us. Um, and as I mentioned, thank you, Blakely, for sponsoring tonight's event and uh, providing us with the fun buttons. I hope everybody wears it and tweets, uh, hashtag AFPSDS. Uh, <laughs> I'd also like to thank the NHL hockey playoff schedule for not having a Leafs game tonight. Uh, I did, in a moment of panic today, look up the hockey schedule. And as I understand it, a Canadian team plays later. Uh, so you, we'll have you out of here by 930. So guaranteed hockey fans of the room, we're all set. Uh, <laughs> um, so th for those of you joining us for the first time, uh, just a quick recap of what tonight is and why we're here. Um, the event series started in January in 2017 now. 
as an idea that I had. Um, I was an education committee member for Congress, uh, and then after that, the chair of the education committee. And I would frequently hear people who were upset to be declined from Congress uh, because they weren't, they didn't have speaking experience. And they said, well, that's what I'm trying to get. Um, and there wasn't a, a pathway to get there. Um, so I looked to one of my favorite things, podcasts for a solution. Uh, and there was storytelling. Uh, anyone can do it. We all have stories to tell, uh, and there were no barriers. Uh, in, the, in that moment, I knew there was an event that needed to be created. Uh, my husband, who's in the room tonight, um, will recall a fateful car ride where I said, hey, what if I started a thing? Um, and he's like, you don't need another thing. Uh, <laughs> But tonight, uh, I, we will present a storytelling show. You'll notice there's no slide decks, uh, no props, just fundraisers with a story to tell. Uh, the speakers you will see tonight are new or new to AFP speakers who are looking to gain speaking experience in front of the AFP crowd. Each of them applied to be part of tonight, and once they were selected, they worked one-on-one -on -one with a coach who helped them to craft their story uh, and were given pointers on their presentation style. Uh, this coaching is directed by the speaker, so whatever they need out of the coaching, they get. Uh, if they need a phone call every day, Sam will call them every day. If they only need a couple of calls, she's all over that as well. But uh, once you see them tonight, you're not going to believe that they haven't spoken before. Uh, and the opportunity to learn to speak is just one benefit. They also receive feedback on their performance tonight. This feedback is detailed written feedback, uh, but it also comes with a score that can be used as proof of their speaking ability uh, should they choose to submit to larger conferences. Um, and uh, SDS has already uh, created some pathways for some breakthrough speakers. We've had folks speak at Congress, CAGP, uh, just last week at AFP ICON. Alexis Gateman from season one blew the roof off the place. Uh, everyone I, I, I spoke to heard uh, said she was amazing. So um, it's really been exciting to see these speakers grow and change and become names on the speaking circuit. So thank you to our judges tonight. So we have Paul Nazareth, we have Ken Wyman, and Suzanne Duncan. They are dotted through the audience because as we like to point out to people, this is not American Idol style panel review. <laughs> Um, all three of these, yeah, or voice, uh, all three of these very experienced speakers have spoken at international conferences, Congress. Uh, they know the, the name of the game and they know how to become a great speaker. So they are a, a, a panel of individuals to give them feedback. So tonight's theme uh, of all the stories is secrets. So on the stage tonight, it's gonna be rough, guys. Uh, <laughs> We'll hear from six amazing speakers who are going to touch on everything from the professional to the very personal. Um, and in, since so, so many of these stories are so personal, please be reminded that this is a storytelling show. Uh, and as such, I encourage you to be an open, supportive, and loving audience to everyone who comes up here tonight. Um, part of that supportive mentality will be tweeting your encouragement. So as I mentioned earlier, our hashtag is hashtag AFPSDS, uh, and we'd love to see some social media traction. It helps us have more of these events. Uh, and one final piece of housekeeping is that we'll be recording tonight's show uh, and turning it into a podcast. Uh, we've done that with every other edition of the Speaker Discovery Series. So if you haven't listened to them, I encourage you to go back and listen to our back catalog. There's some really great stories in there. Um, so yeah, check it out when it drops and share it with your friends. Uh, but that's it. That's all the housekeeping. Let's do some storytelling. 
Uh, so to kick off our night and break the ice a little, I'd like to welcome to stage Sarah Ali, who is the digital lead, digital organizing lead at Mobilization Lab. I met Sarah on her first day as a Humber student uh, and knew in that moment that one day she would be a powerhouse in the sector. It's only been a couple of years uh, since that moment and she's already become that force and probably one day will be the boss of all of us. Uh, uh, and uh, Sarah's story is one to help us set the table for tonight and bring us together as that supportive and loving audience. So welcome, Sarah. Keep your head down. Don't make too many waves. Play the long game. These are just some of the few pieces of advice I have received during my professional career. My name is Sarah Ali. I'm a digital fundraising consultant, and I'm the digital organizing and comms lead at the Mobilization Lab. And I have a secret. That secret is that I can't keep a secret. Okay, okay, let me backtrack. I promise I am not walking around spilling the proverbial tea on my friends and peers and colleagues, so Laura, your secrets are safe with me. But when it comes to who I am and what I believe, I can't keep that quiet. Let me explain. So I grew up in Kingston, Ontario. In 1991, yeah, woo to all the Queens grads, do the thing. Do the thing, this is your place too. <laughs> Um, but in 1991, that was a pretty small town, under 100,000, predominantly white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And so for myself and my family, we were often the only visibly of color family in a neighborhood. What that also meant is that I was often the only visibly of color student in every class that I ever took from kindergarten to high school. And I remember really, really vividly uh, the first day of kindergarten. I, as you can probably tell, am quite keen. Uh, and <laughs> so I was very excited. Uh, I spent, you know, the morning talking excitedly with my family about learning and books and toys and stacking blocks and all the good things. I donned my small tartan uniform and I strode confidently into the classroom. I sat down having found a space nice and close to the teacher, again, quite keen. And something I didn't expect happened. A little boy who at that point had been sitting next to me, let's call him Patrick, shot out of his seat. He moved to the opposite side of the room. And he glared at me. The teacher was obviously irritated. She's got a job to do. It's the first day. Uh, and she said, Patrick, why did you leave your seat? It's, you know, we've gotten started. And what he said, with all of the, the venom that a five-year-old can muster, was, I won't sit next to her, she's dirty. And so, you know, while the nuances uh, of intergenerational trauma and systemic racism were definitely lost on me in that moment, uh, what did stick was the knowledge that something was wrong with me, that I was different. And in that moment, I really, really wanted to hide. I wanted to hide everything that I am, everything I had to say, every moment of excitement about stacking blocks. No, not, not for anyone else, this is just for me. 
And so at the age of five, I learned a really, really important lesson. That our schools and our workplaces aren't necessarily designed to be inclusive or diverse. They're designed to be productive and effective. And so for someone like me, who is queer, invisibly disabled, Muslim, of color, every sector, no matter what, was gonna be a battlefield. And I look around this room today and I see folks who are not unlike myself. Folks who don't really fit the traditional mode of fundraiser. You know, for some of us who are maybe non-traditionally educated, or for example, for whom this is a second career path, and those of us who fell into the proverbial hole of fundraising. I don't know if you all have heard that before. Anytime someone asks a fundraiser, how did you get here? Like, well, I kind of fell into it. <laughs> As though it were a hole. Uh, it's not, it's great. Keep your jobs. <laughs> um, and I also see, you know, faces in this room and, and those of us who come into our jobs and to our sector and our workplaces every single day with a fire to make change that really only comes from the lived experience as a fundraiser who's black, who's indigenous, who's visibly of color, who's queer, who's Muslim, who's trans, who's disabled, who's working class, the list goes on. And so when I look around this room, I also see a really difficult choice. And it may actually be the hardest choice many of us in this room will ever have to make. That choice is, is the secret of ourselves worth it to reveal? Now, when we look at the corporate sector, we can see that they are far, far ahead of us in many, many ways. Uh, I work in digital, so this is a persistent issue on my end. <laughs> in, but we, what, you know, in, in 2015, Forbes did a survey of 300 plus senior executives of Fortune 500 companies and asked the question, what, if any, is the link between diversity and innovation? And overwhelmingly, the response was that diversity lays the foundation for innovation that the differing perspectives required to truly disrupt a sector and to truly create change cannot happen without diversity, inclusion, equity, and liberation. And so we have a choice. We have a choice as individuals, we have a choice within our organizations and our teams, and we have a choice as a sector. Is the secret of ourselves, of our full selves, worth it to reveal? I would say yes. I would say that in our sector, we posit diversity, inclusion, and equity as a moral imperative. So it's you know, a feel-good thing that we should do and we will do, and it's gonna happen next week or next board meeting, and it makes sense, right? You know, if, you, if you're like me and you've worked on the agency side, or if you're like me and worked in a small nonprofit, it's like at, at every moment you have one hand putting a new hat on, and the other hand you're like putting out a fire, and you're like, I don't have time for new, I can't do anything new. Um, but the, the reality, though, is that as Forbes very clearly underlined and as, as many leaders in both the, uh, the tech uh, and, and innovation space have really, really you know, brought home, is that if we do not stop seeing diversity as simply an altruistic act or altruistic practice and just you know, a moral imperative that we'll do because it's the right thing to do and start seeing it as a business need, that's where innovation lives. That's 
where budget items and committees get formed or paid positions open up. That's where we start to see diversity and inclusion as something that if we don't do it, we will fail as, or, as an organization or as a sector. And folks, I hate to break it to you, but we can't fail. We serve the most underserved populations. Whether your organization provides housing or healthcare or protects children or the animals or the earth, you know, your work as a fundraiser is the last stand behind, between the ravages of free market capitalism and a state that cares more about corporate tax incentives than human life or the environment. So we can't fail. This is a big onus. And so again, I look around this room and I see a choice. That choice is a choice I made early in my career. I had the opportunity to listen to some of the advice I started this chat off with and keep quiet and keep my head down and not say the thing. I could have very easily gone along with the flow. I could have very easily taken a more traditional path, um, but I chose not to. I decided to build a career and a life out of my most vulnerable and intimate secrets, the secrets of my identity and the secrets of my experience. And at 27, I have now pushed large legacy national charities who are incredibly risk averse to adopt strategies of digital transformation for the very first time. I started my own consultancy. I work with the Mobilization Lab and train senior executive leaders on design thinking and digital transformation. And as an activist and as a community organizer, I helped build the largest day of action in Canadian history against Islamophobia and white supremacy. And I did all of that because I refused to keep the secret. And at this point, I suppose what I'll say is that after a couple years, you realize it's no longer about refusing to keep the secret. It's that your secrets aren't secrets anymore. They start to become your badges of honor. My name is Sarah Lee. I have a secret. And my secret is that I can't keep a secret. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. What a great way to kick off our night. She's amazing. Um, for those of you new in the room, I, I do a little side story uh, in between these uh, speakers uh, just to uh, give the judges a chance to get caught up. Um, sometimes they're funny, sometimes I bomb. Let's see how we go. Uh, we'll see. Uh, Sarah, your, your opening made me, and constantly in this, this comment really is only for Maeve in the room, um, of uh, <laughs> The uh, I'm obsessed with Hamilton and the talk less, smile more, and it sticks in my head a lot uh, of that. So you're welcome, Maeve. You'll be singing it all night. Um, I, too, cannot keep a secret to save my life. Um, it's definitely an ongoing problem that I have uh, where my husband tells me not to say something and then I immediately say something. Um, this has been, uh, you know, it's part of my speaking my truth, but in the worst possible way, I would have to say, um, because I often step in it. Um, so yeah, that's something you should know about me. Uh, one uh, such secret uh, is uh, one of my best friends in the world um, told me she was getting engaged uh, for uh, like two or three weeks in advance of it happening. And I told, Six people, Julia. 
I knew. So um, I immediately told people, people who didn't care, but I had to tell someone Julia was getting engaged. Julia's here tonight. Congratulations, Julia. She got engaged. So, you're welcome. So our next speaker, um, I'm going to uh, give a quick uh, disclaimer here, and then I'm going to tell a quick story, and then I'm going to introduce her. Um, so our, our next speaker, um, uh, I'm issuing a content warning here, so I want you to all think carefully uh, about whether or not this story is for you. Um, so her story, I just want to read what I wrote. Um, the work Sandra does uh, is uh, incredibly difficult. Um, and so I want to give you all a moment to decide uh, if a story which contains details about sexual assault, some involving children, uh, is something you're prepared to take on this evening. Um, we're going to have a break right after this story. So if you would rather take the breather, get a, a jump on the bar line, um, and uh, just hang out out there, I'm going to give you a minute to, to elect to make that decision um, right now before I introduce Sandra. Um, and knowing that the tone in the room has shifted. Um, I elected to tell secrets about myself tonight um, because everybody else is uh, doing the same. Um, something that I had the, uh, the pleasure of doing uh, last October was speaking at IFC. Um, and what I got to do actually was a storytelling show, which is wicked cool and obviously my wheelhouse. Um, and we had to tell a story about uh, or, or talk about a project we didn't think about. So it's called I Wish I Thought of That. Um, so I was digging and trying to figure out what's this project that I wish I would have thought of. Um, and ultimately what I landed on was a, a project from the Lung Association about COPD. I have no connection to COPD other than I too have an invisible illness. And so I, going to the world's biggest fundraising conference, uh, something that I have aspired to go to since uh, I learned it was a thing, um, got up on stage and the first thing I said was, I have an invisible illness and told a room of several hundred people. Um, it was terrifying um, and uh, incredibly intimidating. Uh, and I cried after. And I cried after because I felt liberated. Um, it was a relief to, that it was over, don't get me wrong. I was very nervous. Uh, I did, I maybe had a hives-based breakdown the day before, just being so nervous. Um, luckily, two of my colleagues saw me and immediately said, let's go to the bar. And so we did. <laughs> Went to the bar, so thank you. Um, but it was this extreme liberation to be able to, to tell people um, that I was living with something serious, and it wasn't just you know, look at Laura, she's got it together. And you know, that kind of thing that she gets to speak at this world-class conference. Um, because, you know, to Sarah's earlier point, you just don't know the, the barriers that people are facing. So, pretty cool. I'm gonna bring Sandra up now. No, no, save it for our speakers. Uh, Sandra uh, is our next speaker. So Sandra Gemboyas is the Director of Development uh, and Mobilization at GTA, uh, GTA and the International Justice Mission. Uh, I met Sandra a few years ago now when our paths actually crossed at a Stephen Thomas Christmas party, uh, of all places. Um, and uh, she had just left the place where I was now working and she wanted to check in with me because that's how wonderful of a person she is. Uh, so I'm so grateful that she's here to tell her story tonight. Welcome, Sandra. 
just in case I forget. Oh, the lights are bright. Um, so it is serious. So I apologize for that. We all had a very good laugh. So thank you, speakers. A couple of years ago, almost two years ago, I should say, I, I volunteered for an organization called Living Waters in Trinidad. Um, they help the poor in the community, the, the poorest of the poor. And they help them by providing food, uh, they provide uh, training, they also provide medical care. And they had an orphanage. I went to visit that orphanage. And it was at this orphanage that I learned something that really changed me and the way I look at poverty. I arrived there, it was about lunchtime. The children, very small children, were eating. And while they were eating, being a fundraiser, I'm curious. I want to ask staff tons of questions. I asked them, what happens to the children here? And they told me, well, most of them got adopted. I said, excellent, those are great news. What about the children that don't get adopted? Well, they told me, the boys go to this house where we provide them home, food, and education. And once they get some training and they're old enough to get a job, they go out there into the world and they go into their lives and live their lives out of trouble. They don't join gangs. So that's fantastic. What about the girls, the little girls? Well, the girls, we actually try to find them a place where they can kind of work and then hopefully they get married and then they go into their lives. But most of the girls go missing. What do you mean most of the girls go missing? I was about to learn something that I never thought of when I was... Um, involved in, in poverty issues. It's just, I thought I read so much and this I was not prepared for. And quite frankly, I didn't want to be here to talking about it, but I felt the need. They told me that human trafficking is used in Trinidad. So what is the police doing about? What is the government doing about? I asked them and they said, nothing. They know what's going on, but they're not doing anything about it. So I came back to Toronto with that. And I was thinking, what do I do with this information? And that's how I found out about the International Justice Mission. IGM's mission is to protect the poor from violence. It turns out violence is just as a threat to the poor as hunger, lack of medicine, lack of education, lack of clean water. I never knew this. I learned that the little girl in some of the countries wants to go to school and she risks being raped by their own teachers. A little girl wants to go to church, wants to get access to clean water. She risks being raped and she risks being kidnapped and sold that very night. I just did not know about that. And I kept learning about these things. So if you are a parent, you obviously don't want to send your children to school because you know there will be risk, they will be raped. So we keep them home. But how can you lift a child from poverty if they can get an education? It's impossible. 
So I was really upset. I said, if violence against the poor is that serious, how come when I attended a conference in ultra poverty, it never came up? We talk about education, we talk about microfinancing, we talk about clean water, but violence never came up. So I found out that in some countries, you're more likely to be hit by light, you're more likely to be hit by lightning than go to jail for raping a child. It is illegal. But like the little girls in Trinidad, no one is doing anything about it. I found out that in the world, there's about one million children in sex traffic. I found out that one in five girls worldwide will be a victim of rape or attempted rape. I found out there was about four billion children, uh, four billion people living outside the protection of the law, just like the little girls in Trinidad. No one is looking for them. The justice won't be served. No, no one was there to rescue them. Nobody talks about it. I, I just was completely surprised to hear this. But here's a catch. This is not the secret that I want to talk to you about. But it's something that I wanted you to know because it's important to me. Because we are fundraisers, I was thinking, okay, what secret can I share with this audience? So I decided to look at the dictionary, Cambridge Dictionary, of the definition of secrets. There's three definitions that came up. Well, one, it's a secret that only you or a few people know about it and you don't talk about it. Like many of us, I'm really bad at keeping a secret. So uh, for instance, when it comes to major giving, when I come across a really neat white paper, I share with my colleagues. Or when I read an article how successful an organization was in improving their retention rates, I share with my colleagues. I also share with my colleagues my good donor meetings and my not so good donor meetings. And I have a few of those ones. And the reason I share is because one, I need to vent, really important to me. But the true reason why I share my experiences is so that my colleagues don't do the same mistakes as I've done. So they'll learn from those experiences. So I knew the first definition of secrets is not something for me. It just didn't resonate. I couldn't share with you guys that. The second definition is the secrets of the universe. I certainly don't know anything about that, so I can't talk about that secret. So the third secret was um, a knowledge or skill set that you have as the fundraiser, or knowledge or skill set that you have that makes you successful. I said, huh, okay, let me think about that one. And of course, Maybe it's a little bit of an ego. I could think of many things. What is, all this is making me really successful. But truly, when I kind of calmed my thoughts and reflected, I could think of three things. But there was one little thing, one thing in particular that I thought was truly the, the success, the reason behind my success. And there was the passion for the mission. So let me sort of explain with a story how that translates into success. 
a couple a couple weeks ago, I was meeting with a donor that wanted to learn a little bit more about cybersex trafficking in the Philippines. So I decided to read about everything about cybersex trafficking in the Philippines that we're doing. I want to know the statistics. I want to know the stories. I want to see the pictures. I want to see the videos of our rescues. I just want to know everything. The day came, I met with the donor, and like me, she's a mom of two young children. So I shared with her that 54% of the children that we rescue in cyber sex trafficking are between the ages of 1 and 12. I shared with her that when we were working in the commercial sex industry in the Philippines, the children that we rescue were between the ages of 16 and 17. So cyber sex traffic is attracting people that really want young children. I share with her the story of Marco. Marco is the seven-year-old boy that we res rescue in the Philippines from cyber sex trafficking. Marco was asked to do things that I really don't want to talk about it and I don't really want it to know about, who wasn't for my passion for the mission. It turns out that the more violent the act, the more the criminal is willing to pay for the children. It's a $150 billion industry, the human traffic industry. But that was not the worst for Marco. The worst for Marco is when this criminal asked him to, know, to now go get his sister, who was two years old. Marco loved his sister. He was the big brother, the protector, the sister. I shared this story with the donor and I shared how our lawyers, how our rescues happened, how our social workers helped these children. It's a lot of trauma. At the end of my stories, the donor is in tears crying and she turns to me and asks me, how can I help you fix this? How can I help you stop this from happening? So I realized that my success is my passion for the mission. I, it allows me to bring the donor in that journey, to feel part of the solution to the problems that we have to deal every day. My passion for the mission is what keeps me learning and oftentimes about issues that I really don't want to know about. Cannot even talk about what I do with my mom. She goes, I cannot hear that, Sandra. It is my passion for the mission that keeps me growing as a professional. So tactics and strategies are all very important, but to me, it came down to that. The passion for the mission. It gives me the energy. Is the secret in my tool kit, my fundraising toolkit that makes me successful. It fuels me. So I just ask the following question, we're all fundraisers here. What is the secret that fuels you every day as a fundraiser? Thank you. Everybody take a breath. We need it. The good news is it's time for a break. This episode of the Speaker Discovery Series podcast brought to you by Blakely. Blakely is not your usual agency. 
They are your partners in fundraising and marketing. They know there are obstacles in our way, budgets, bureaucracy, and beyond. But they also know that together we can get past them. They offer donors an inspiring experience in giving to you and raise millions of dollars for your mission. Thank you so much for your sponsorship, Blakely. Now, back to the show. Okay. So before we start the second half, I'm going to give a very long introduction and I'll explain why in a moment. So, um, Sometimes in life, there are people who are just kind of on the peripheral of, of your life and you've heard of them, but you've never really hung out with them or interacted with them. And uh, you're like, oh yeah, that's so-and-so's friend. Um, Lindsay Sweeney Hawken, uh, who is our next speaker, and I have um, that it, relationship. So as I was preparing for tonight's show and writing up my show notes, the, her name just kept popping at me and I went, how do I know their name? And so finally, uh, for whatever reason, I sent a text to my best friend who I have been friends with since I was 13. And I thought, maybe she will know who this person is. And so I go, do you know Lindsay Sweeney? And she sends me a text back that says, yeah, we were friends in high school, why? And I said, oh, that must be how I know her. And then I look up her LinkedIn and she went to University of Windsor. And I thought, I went to University of Windsor. Maybe I met her there. So when she got here today, I said, we, we started comparing notes on this. Um, she was an RA in the building that I lived in when I was there. We never met. We both lived in Windsor for four years. We never met. Now we're both fundraisers in Toronto and we had never met until tonight. So when I messaged Maria, my best friend, she said, oh yeah, no, we caught up on Instagram like two weeks ago. I am spending Monday night or Monday with Maria and her kids. So it was just one of those weird worlds collide, coincidence world. And I almost didn't tell Lindsay this story before she came up on stage tonight. And I thought that is just not setting someone up for success uh, to ambush her with this story. But it's, uh, it was just a funny, you know, small world, of course, in the fundraising world kind of connection. So I'm gonna bring her up here to dazzle you with her story. Uh, Lindsay Sweeney Hawken is the Senior Development Officer at YMCA of Greater Toronto. Uh, her story is one that we all need a constant reminder of, so I'm glad we're kicking off uh, the second half with this important story. Welcome, Lindsay. You know, that's not the first time that's happened to me with someone, but I'm really glad you shared that with me before I came up, because that would have been awkward. Um, so my name's Lindsay. Uh, my pronouns are she and her and they and them. So I came from, I come from a nuclear family. A mom, a dad, and 2.5 children. A brother, and I have an identical twin sister, so that's the 1.5. <laughs> so we grew up in a small town of Goddard, Ontario. You know, it was the 80s, there was no technology, so it was just really picnics, parks, and peanut butter sandwiches. My world was really small when I was young. It consisted of moms and dads, Catholicism, white people, cisgendered men and women, and heteronormativity. You know, if you ask LGBT folks what was the moment where they realized they were different, they could tell you. And so I'm gonna tell you that story first. And my difference I'm gonna define as my secrets today. So that moment for me was when I watched the Canadian made-for-TV classic, The Challengers. Anyone know that? Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> so the IMDb definition is, posing as a boy, 
Mackie slash Mac, moves to town, joins a club of boys who like rock music and mountain biking. I was in love with it. It was the first type of queerness or difference that I had ever seen, and I was like seven years old. And I just wanted to soak it all up, so I did. I taped it on my VHS and I watched it over and over and over again. So in Goddard, it's a tourist town. Um, you know, we have boat tours and we spent a lot of the time at the beach. So realizing that Mackie slash Mac convinced the whole town and these club of boys that she was different, I, I thought I could do it too. So one morning, I woke up, instead of putting on my swimsuit, I put on my brother's swim shorts and t-shirt and my trusty new kids on the block hat and walked out the door behind my mom. So we got to the beach and uh, we went off on our own as we usually did because it was the 80s. And I lost my brother and sister at the ice cream place and I headed right to the tour boats. So I started to shove my hair underneath my hat like Mackie slash Mac did. And I started to change my walk and lower the tone of my voice. I walked onto that tour boat and I, you know, being my charming self, convinced people that my new persona was Liam. And it was honestly awesome. It was awesome to try something different. I mean, I'm pretty sure I didn't convince anyone because I was seven years old. And uh, the whole, the tone of my voice and especially the walk for an hour probably didn't convince anybody. So after the boat tour, I joined my new friends on the beach close to my family. My mom heard what I was doing and heard this new name, Liam, that I decided to call myself and uh, came over and excused my, me from my new friends and uh, saying that we had to leave. My mom then shared with me that lying wasn't a good idea and that I was a girl and I should really keep that kind of stuff to myself. She said people thought maybe I would, was strange. So this was the first message I got about difference or these secrets that they were strange. So you know, kept them to myself. When I was eight years old, my sister and I uh, were taken out of regular class and put into a smaller classroom of four students. We were there Tuesdays and Thursdays. We had teachers like Mrs. Parisi who smelled like flowers and her heels would click on the floor. You could hear a kilometer away. She was funny. Um, and you know, in that classroom, we learned how to write to the best of their ability and we learned to read to the best of our ability. But I didn't really know why we were there. No one really told Kristen and I, my sister, why we were there. Until one day in the yard, um, one of the students told me why we were there. It was a recharge classroom. When we told my mom this, when we got home, she didn't want to talk about it. See, the thing is, is my mom had her own secret. Um, my mom left high school when she was 15 to go right into the workforce. And she didn't go back and finish high school until she was 40, which I actually think is pretty amazing. Um, you know, see, the three women in my immediate family share a learning difference called dysgraphia. And it, and it varies between the three of us. But how I would describe it is that the words in my head that I want to say doesn't always come out in my hands when I type and write. And the thing is, is that this difference, the secret, was hard. 
people thought I was lazy, people thought that I wasn't living up to my potential, that I just wasn't trying hard enough. And, and, and that really wasn't the case. So, you know, as I got older, these secrets got harder to keep. I did go to high school in a Catholic school in suburbia, and you learned how people treated difference there. <laughs> a lot of teachers and therapists would say that I was high functioning, which means that I didn't really need the help because other people needed it more. But I would fall through the cracks, and I would struggle, even through university. In my third year of university, I ran my first fundraiser. It was called Bald for Breast Cancer. My mom was a breast cancer survivor, and my friends and I thought it was going to be a good idea to shave our heads for breast cancer. So in the planning of this event, I made a new friend. And this friend identified as a lesbian. She was the first real lesbian I had ever met, because that's clearly not true. That's why I'm doing this. <laughs> Um, and through that friendship, I learned, I started to think about myself in a different way and learned different things about myself. And on that day of that fundraiser, when I shaved my head for everyone to see, I decided to come out. <laughs> on November 3rd, I mean, November 1st, 2003. Yeah, that's a memorable date for me. Um, I came out to my friends and to my sister at that time. Um, I didn't really tell anyone else for a while. It slipped out when my mom came to visit me because I can't keep secrets from her. Um, and she told me not to tell my dad. So I didn't. But I came home for Christmas that year and she had decided to do it for me without my permission. So my dad took me out for lunch and uh, proceeded to tell me that people like that went to hell. So the, so it was difficult after that. It was really difficult. The, the thing is I want to make clear is that I am privileged in a lot of ways that my parents loved me and supported me in a lot of ways. They helped me through school. They, um, you know, wanted to help me in my career. They wanted to know about my friends. But that part of me, they didn't want to know. I was discouraged to bring people home. I was discouraged to tell my immediate, my extended family. Um, for five years, that was their secret. And so in that five years, I graduated university. I had my first love. I had my first heartbreak. I started my first profession. I quit that first profession. And then I went back to Humber for fundraising. Um, for Yeah, woohoo to the Humber fundraising guys. Woohoo, we're great. Hire us. <laughs> I don't know, ad-libbing here. Um, and so I started to realize things about myself that, uh, you know, I wanted to embrace everything about myself. I didn't want to have any more secrets. So when I graduated Humber, I found an intern and a mentor that was unapologetically herself. And I got to witness her unapologetic love with her partner and how our coworkers treated them. And it has forever made an impact on me. And so since then, I really have tried hard to pick jobs that fit with that, that continued to allow me to, to be myself, whatever that meant, because it has evolved over the years. And so I can happily say today that I, and I mean, I'm gonna be honest, it hasn't always worked. And so there has been times where I've had to leave 
And I got better and better at knowing when that was the point to go. And I can happily say now that I'm in a job where I can be unapologetically myself with no secrets. The values and the practice of those values, that's very important, actually lend to it. And you know, I can say now I'm actually happily married and my, um, my dad did attend our wedding and said a beautiful speech. My friends thought it was important for me to add that piece in, um, but yes. So that's good. Um, and, uh, you know, people could say this is like, oh, fairy tale ending, but we all know that those types of endings is only a snapshot of time. And we all know also that not everyone wants difference, these secrets, to be known to people. And I know that I'm privileged most of the time to be able to be safe when telling these secrets to people. And I know that's not the case for everyone. So the secret to my success is that I am an unapologetically myself in everything that I do, and that I create space for people to be unapologetically themselves as well and make sure that I do work that does the same. Thank you. Thank you, Lindsay. Um, great uh, segue for me to thank our sponsor tonight, Blakely, uh, who lets me be unapologetically insane every day as well. <laughs> and, and do this. So uh, thank you to Blakely on that. Uh, <laughs> I don't know where to go from there. Uh, <laughs> let's be real. Um, so I think we all have uh, secret obsessions, just little things that we keep to ourselves of things that we're absolutely obsessed with. And I just thought I'd share a few of mine while I, I fill some time for our judges. Um, something that I absolutely love that makes my husband insane is uh, celebrity gossip blogs. Um, like deep web celebrity gossip. I'm looking at you, Jason Novelli. And, uh, you know, stuff where it's blind items in, and you're just guessing. I don't know why I'm obsessed. So that's, that's for me. That's my alone time. Um, I also know everything about basically every type of octopus. Um, so I have this, um, like dream that Phil and I win the lottery, um, or, you know, something happens where we have an extreme windfall and I build a mansion and in the mansion, I have a library and in the library, there's a wall that's curtains kind of like this. And I bring people into the library and they're like, Oh, look at the books. This is great. And I pull the, the cord and there's an octopus there. And I don't know why. And I think about it a lot. Um, and the octopus's name is Cassandra. I just need you to know it goes that far. Like it goes that deep that I'm obsessed with octopus. So anytime it comes up, I just hit you with octopus facts. So quiz me after I will hit you with facts. So, oh, they're very different, Scott. Squids have a pen, which is a bone inside of them. So they can't squeeze through things. Octopus don't have that. Come on. I'm not, a, I'm not an amateur. Um, why don't we have another speaker come up? <laughs> so our next speaker this evening is Miriam Wilson. 
who is the digital fundraising and engagement manager at Greenpeace Canada. Most of the time when I'm introducing speakers, I like to give a note on how impressed I am by their bio or perhaps a lead in with other stories that I, how I know them or their personal application. Um, but sometimes it's just a fun fact. And uh, when I read Miriam's application, there was one fun fact that stood out and she noted that she was quote, passionate about ice cream. Uh, and it's, it's just a fact you can't argue with. So let's passionately listen to Miriam. Welcome Miriam. Have you ever felt like a complete imposter? <laughs> when I was new to my role as a digital campaigner at Greenpeace Canada, I felt like an imposter. I felt like there was the secret to the world of digital and online marketing and fundraising that being new, I just didn't get. So I started learning all of these industry terms in an attempt to brush up. And I had recently learned the term search engine optimization strategy. <laughs> and I was explaining to my colleague how it's really gonna help with our online fundraising. And he said, you know what would really help with our online fundraising? if we actually asked for donations online. <laughs> it turns out the secret was not so very mysterious after all. Online fundraising is like any other kind of fundraising. It starts by asking. Um, to give you some more context on my colleagues' comments, Greenpeace Canada was going through a really hard time. We had lost some key members of our fundraising team we had gone through a series of fundraising directors. We currently had no dedicated head of fundraising. We were losing monthly donors every single day and we weren't bringing in enough new supporters to make the difference. Our online donation pages hadn't been updated for a really long time and our systems didn't speak to one another. So if a donor made a gift via direct mail, they weren't counted as a donor in our email system without a data transfer between them, a manual data transfer. I'm sure many of you can relate. Um, and, part, and this was having a real impact. Um, this poor fundraising performance was having a real impact. As Greenpeace, we were up against no small challenges. We were and still are working to build a movement of millions of people to stop climate change protect the oceans and forests and defend biodiversity. It was clear that something needed to change and we needed to up our digital fundraising game. But where to begin? It was around that time that I found myself working on the most important campaign I've ever been part of. Greenpeace was running a campaign to protect the Arctic from oil drilling and overfishing. And we had recently apologized for our role in starting a campaign against the commercial seal hunt back in the 1970s. After a number of animal rights organizations had 
piled onto the campaign, the EU had banned seal pelt imports. And the impact on the Inuit economy was devastating. Seeing our apology, the community of Clyde River Nunavut reached out to us. They were fighting an oil exploration project that had been approved by the federal government off the coast of Baffin Island. Seismic blasting involves blasting air cannons eight times louder than a jet engine every seven seconds, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for months on end to map the seabed looking for oil. The noise is deafening to marine mammals like seals and whales that depend on their hearing to find food and that in turn Inuit communities like Clyde River depend on for their food and their livelihood. So Greenpeace and Clyde River formed an historic partnership and we agreed to support them to take their case against seismic blasting all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. But as the court date loomed closer, the legal fees started to add up beyond what we had budgeted for. And there was this huge weight of responsibility. This community had forgiven us, they had trusted us to support their case. There was no way we were going to let them down. So uh, we decided to write an email to our supporters. We decided to explain to them that with the court hearing in just a few days, we needed them to stand with Clyde River and chip in what they could afford to give them the best legal representation possible. And we were amazed by the response. Um, after just sending two emails, we'd closed the gap on the legal fees. And the next year, Clyde River won their case at the Supreme Court of Canada and seismic blasting was stopped. Yes. I knew that this was a special case. And when it came to turning around our online fundraising, we were gonna have to work a lot harder than that. That December, during end of year, we sent more fundraising emails in a single month than we had probably the entire year combined. Um, and at the same time, we were still grappling with our technological challenges. That meant a manual data import before every single email we sent. Nothing could be pre-scheduled over the holidays. So during her vacation, my colleague was sending fundraising emails from the top of the ski lift. It was not an ideal situation, but um, the hard work paid off. And by the end of year, after just a few months, uh, we had more than doubled our online revenue. Yes. <laughs> and um, I had learned the importance of sen sending authentic fundraising appeals and of sending more email to raise more money. Um, it was then that Greenpeace was hit by a $300 million lawsuit by a major North American logging company. This was a slap lawsuit, a strategic lawsuit uh, a baseless lawsuit designed to silence us and to drain our resources in a time-consuming and expensive legal battle. 
again, we decided to explain the situation, to share this news with our supporters. And they stood with us. We were sending more emails, we were asking more for donations. But that year, our numbers started falling. I remember looking at the results every single month, getting lower and lower, and then panicking as we came close to end of year, realizing we weren't going to hit our goal, which, by the way, had doubled after the previous year's successes. <laughs> um, so, we started looking at the data and we learned a few important lessons. Number one, we weren't asking for enough. Our average gift was too low and it was getting lower. So we started testing our ask amount and trying out different, different asks. Secondly, uh, we weren't retaining our donors. So all those amazing people who'd given the year before, we weren't inspiring them to come back and give again. So we started segmenting and personalizing our emails more. And thirdly, uh, there were many donors who were giving to us at multiple times throughout the year, but we were actually suppressing them from our fundraising appeals because we didn't want to bother them by asking them to give again. So we started acknowledging their gift and thanking them and asking them to give again. As we approached end of year that year, it was a nail-biting time. Our fundraising goal was the highest it had ever been. And I was nervous to fall short for a second year in a row, knowing the impact that it could have. To make things even more nail biting, I had agreed to go away with some friends to a cabin on New Year's Eve, that fateful day for any fundraiser without cell phone reception or internet access or even electricity. So it was late in the day on January 1st when I was able to get online finally from a nearby town and see that we had hit our goal for the year. Um, woo. So if you've ever felt like me, like an imposter when it came to digital and to fundraising, know this. Don't let the complex terminology or the fear of technology or the fact that you don't have perfectly aligned systems stop you from building a successful online fundraising program. Like my colleague said, just know that all you really need to do is ask. Thank you. Thank you, Miriam. So I think part of my problem uh, keeping a, a secret as an adult is because I had to keep uh, a lot of secrets as a kid. Um, one of them I thought I was keeping really well as a kid. I actually, um, my sisters and I uh, grew up with my mom and stepdad and I shared a bed till I went to college because um, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, and I wore all hand-me-downs and on top of that, my stepfather, um, despite being weirdly hard about a lot of things, um, rescued any cat he found on the street. So, um, I, it's funny till you hear the next part. Um, so two bedroom house, one bathroom, three teenage girls, 15 cats. 
So um, when you are 13 years old, do you think you can, that you're hiding it uh, from people uh, and people don't realize, like, they're like, oh no, she's just every other kid and um, you're definitely hiding this, Laura, great job. Um, but uh, what was revealed to me uh, in high school um, close to Thanksgiving. I thought of the story just because uh, Easter is this weekend. Um, and uh, I got called down to the office. And for those of you who know me, that was out of character. Um, <laughs> did not often get called down in the office. Um, and they call me down and I'm freaking out and I go down there and they hand me a giant gift basket full of canned goods. And I have to bring it back to class and take the bus home with it. It was the can drive that the school had done that they broke up and gave to the kids who needed it. And so in that moment, it was clear to me that not only had I not been keeping a secret from very many people, but anyone who I had um, would know because I had to get on the bus and go home and ask my mom why we were getting this basket and not the other kids. Um, because you don't really know, right, when you're a kid, totally. Like, you know it's different, but not quite the same. Um, and so I think as an adult, I like to be very vocal and very open about what I need uh, because, you know, everything comes to light. Um, and so I think, you know, while I am now a giant goober who tells you about octopuses, um, thank you. For the podcast audience, they said they love goobers. <laughs> I'm going to leave it there. Our final speaker tonight uh, is, uh, is Sandra Solom, Executive Director, Foundation at Boys and Girls Clubs of Canada. Uh, Sandra describes herself as an eternal optimist, which is something that it can be hard to do in our sector. Uh, she's going to close out our show tonight with a story that's going to stick with you and uh, hopefully help to inform tomorrow's as a fundraiser and as a human being. So welcome, Sandra. I apologize. I have some serious notes. But tonight has been great, hasn't it? Let's give it up to all the other presenters. In fact, it's been so good, I might as well just leave. Um, <sighs> well, let me repeat the same thing lots of people have already said. I don't like secrets. In fact, I'm very terrible at keeping them. So if you have a secret to share with me, this goes out to my friends who are here to support me, please don't. However, since the theme is secrets, in fact, I thought I would spend some of my time answering the one question I've been asked a lot over the years, especially in the recent months. So, Sandra, what is the secret to your success? Some of you might consider me nearest to the nonprofit field or even philanthropy in general, but the skills I've amassed over the past 20 years have really prepared me for where I am today. And that's no secret. Am I smart? Sure. But so are all of you. Do I work hard? Yes, I do. But so do you. 
the secret to my success is simply being myself. And that's the answer I give over and over and over again. So let me elaborate on what I actually mean by that. By being yourself, you'll have an easier time managing relationships, especially those with difficult individuals and donors. We all have those. For example, donors who don't eat nightshade vegetables. <sighs> you can Google that if you don't know what that is. And could make a career out of criticizing everything. That being said, I didn't shy away from people that are exactly like this. In fact, I'm a believer that if everyone simply wants to be heard and wants to share what is either motivating them or bothering them. So begins one of the points of tonight's talk for me. The secret is to be brave and go after solving the issue rather than ignoring or shying away from the problem. This is much easier said than done. When I first started my role in the industry, I felt the wrath of the previously mentioned alumni right away. And I thought, I totally want to meet this dragon lady who had everybody shaking in their seats. <laughs> Why? Because I bet you she had something really important to say. Otherwise, why would she spend so much of her time copy editing our alumni magazine after it was published, printed, and delivered to thousands of households across the globe? Ready for it? I called her. However, I only called her because I was too scared to email her. I didn't want her critiquing my entire email finding out that I was in fact an ESL student in middle school and instead send me an edited version back. On the phone and after some time, I realized that her hidden secret was that she obviously and sincerely cared. So I exposed her secret and made her realize she could talk to me. I invited her for a tour and then coffee and for the first time in the history of her involvement in our organization, she felt heard. We totally didn't agree on everything, but we didn't need to either, which brings me to a key part of what I consider my secret success. I refuse to deviate from who I am, what I believe in, and the mission of the cause that I represent to gain a donor. I'm unapologetic of who I am, but that doesn't mean I'm not respectful of where others are coming from. After 40 plus years of never giving to her alma mater, this donor made her first gift. Does she still critique every single word ever published despite professional proofreaders and writers on staff? Of course she does, but she's a lot nicer about it. This takes me naturally to my second example for tonight, which I like to call transparency. We had a donor who is without a doubt one of the wealthiest women in the world. Is that significant? Not to me in terms of how I was going to treat her, but it was to my manager. There began the start of the whole problem because my manager wanted this donor 
to become an even more significantly larger donor than she already was. Rather than a building an authentic relationship and a truthful relationship, they began to create a scenario that would ideally put them, or us, the organization, in a better position. The problem was that this donor is not just wealthy. She was also very, very smart. And as a significant volunteer at the same time, she asked questions and expected truthful answers. She didn't get them. The result, not a good one. Here we were with potentially one of the biggest supporters of the cause, who now lacked confidence in not only my manager, but by proxy, the entire department. She reached out to the only person she considered to be authentic at the time, me. But why me? I wasn't her main point of contact. I wasn't even senior enough to be in the same room with her most of the time. <laughs> it was because in the few times that we had met, oh, like when I was handing her a name tag, <laughs> getting her coat, bringing her coffee, we built an honest connection on what we had in common. Loss, laughter, a love for food. Never did it matter to me that she did or didn't have money. I treated her the same as everybody else. Back to my original point though, she wasn't happy and wasn't afraid to say it. She went straight to the top to voice her concerns. On her ride up, unbeknownst to me, she took me with her because she still wanted to be involved with the cause but was afraid if she didn't have someone that she could trust with her, she would pull her support. So along for the ride I went and together we helped each other. I helped to rebuild her faith in the cause and then inadvertently she helped build the confidence that I had what it takes to not only build relationships but to rebuild relationships and to do what needs to be done to close major financial gifts. In our profession, we're often surrounded by extremely wealthy individuals and pretending to be in the same social circles as they are just doesn't work. Well, unless you are, congratulations. <laughs> <coughs> However, we're all human in the end, and it's really money that truly connects people. And I'm happy to say we're still friends to this day. So there are a lot of amazing causes in the city that do great work. So what differentiates the causes? You do. One thing I've learned that is clear as a bell is that when an individual aligns with you personally, they remain interested in what you're doing. This often leads to donations but even more valuable is the continued guidance, education, connections, and perhaps even friendships. The fact is that we're all going after the same donors, and that's no secret. For my final example, I share one more secret to my success, knowing when it's the right time to elegantly bow out. You'd be surprised, I sure was, to learn that the length of time at an organization doesn't necessarily dictate when is the right time for you to leave. Heck, it might only be six months. Don't keep secrets from yourself. No one is more difficult to be honest with than you. So I suggest 
all of you ask yourself the following four questions that Laura Fredericks had shared with me. And if you cannot answer yes to all of these, then it is time to bow out. Number one, do you like who you are? Number two, do you like what you do? Number three, do you like whom you do it for? And number four, do you like whom you do it with? Sorry, my hands are shaking. For most of us, it starts off pretty easy. I like myself, and I'm sure most of you like yourselves too. <laughs> but by the time you hit number three, it starts getting a bit trickier to say yes. Number four, well, that's an entire whole speaker series. It's a whole new speaker series. I'm giving you a topic. Do you like whom you do it with? For me, it was, I was genuinely surprised when number three hit me. I didn't see it coming. I hadn't considered that a part of my past would shift my answer from a solid yes to maybe. When I accepted a position at a foundation that supports one of the best children's hospitals in the world, I thought I had come full circle. I hadn't thought about being confronted daily with one of the most painful experiences of my life, the loss of a child. However, there it was. When my first child was born, what should have been one of the most joyous occasions in my life quickly became one of my worst nightmares when she passed away the following day. And shortly after I began my position there, I found myself asking these questions. I was doing amazingly well with the organization and I got pegged for the prestigious leadership program as a rising star of sorts. But in order to not to keep secrets from myself, I had to honestly answer the question, do you like whom you do it for? And the answer was a difficult no. So I bowed out, elegantly of course. Please don't misunderstand me. The children at the foundation supports remain for me some of the bravest humans I will ever have the pleasure of meeting. They will always be a part of me, and that was precisely the problem. I was simply too close to the cause based on my own life experiences to be able to be best for the job. Tough? Absolutely. Best for everyone? For sure. So the secret to my own success is to be yourself. Trust me, you and everyone else will be a whole lot happier for it. Thank you. Thank you, Sandra. It's at this moment that I think of uh, Mother Rue. If you can't uh, love yourself, how the hell are you going to love somebody else? So can I get an amen? Uh, so uh, those, uh, that's it for our speakers tonight. Uh, I have a few quick housekeeping uh, things to deal with, so bear with me. Um, one of which is to bring my colleague from Blakely, Maeve Strathy, to the stage. Uh, Maeve is... Yeah, Maeve. Uh, Maeve is this year's chair of fundraising day, uh, and uh, she's just going to give you a quick plug. So I have a little secret, which is that I totally forgot that Laura was going to invite me up here until about one minute ago when she texted me. Thank goodness. Um, just pause for a second and think about where were you in 1994? Um, 
I had a secret in 1994 that probably everybody who saw a photo of me at the time knew that I didn't. Um, I thought I was going to be an NHL star one day. Um, everybody else knew that I was uh, a budding lesbian, but not, not the point, not the point. Um, something else that happened in 1994, other than me coming to a tough realization, was um, that uh, fundraising day, AFP fundraising day, had its inaugural conference, um, something that I'm really, really proud to be chairing this year in uh, 2019, celebrating 25 years of fundraising day. It's going to be a heck of a day on Thursday, May 30th, and uh, and we've got a jam-packed day with a senior uh, leaders track called Leader Discussions, all focused on discussions among senior leaders that are um, of importance to them. Um, we've also sorted out the schedule so that we can jam four education sessions into one day, all of incredible value. Um, so I'm really, really excited. Again, it's on Thursday, May 30th. Go to AFP Fundraising Day 2019.com or CA. Um, I think it's com. Yeah, um, you'll find it one way or another. Um, that's another secret. Find out. Um, anyway, I really, really hope that you'll join me that day. I'm really looking forward to it. And, uh, and back to... The, a colleague that I'm incredibly proud of tonight, but won't go on too long about that, Laura Champion. I guess that's a, a quick note for AFP staff, just buy both URLs. Um, <laughs> thank you, Maeve. Uh, and thank all of you for being here. Um, we absolutely can't do this event without uh, participants, without speakers, without all your loving faces in the room. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. It always just touches my heart um, that people show up. Um, <laughs> That there will be a next speaker discovery series. It will be in probably September, date TBD. We're just nailing it down uh, with Jacqueline and, and the team on that. Um, I have a ton of people to thank, uh, and I want you all to see the people who helped me put this uh, wonderful event on. So I'm going to ask the committee members to join me on stage for a moment. Uh, Jess Warbluski, who's the Associate Director of Annual Giving at the University of Waterloo, who helps keep us on track. Samantha Barr, whose title is too long, but works at University of Toronto, uh, uh, who coaches our speakers. And our marketing and communications uh, guy, uh, Scott Jeffries, who is the director of media and data services at Stephen Thomas. Um, I literally, especially this time around, um, could not have done it without them, and they, they make it happen, and we're all, you know, so excited. I, if I could brag for a moment, we were in the latest Advancing Philanthropy, um, and it, it just, w this wouldn't happen without them, so thank you guys. Um, I'd also like to thank again Blakely. Um, I'm so privileged to work there every day. Um, please ask me about it, we're hiring. Um, and uh, thank you for supporting me and all my endeavors. Uh, thank you to the AFP staff, to Cynthia and Jacqueline who have, who have done this a few times and to Inder who it was her first go round. Thank you. Uh, thank you to our judges, uh, to Paul, to Ken, to Suzanne. We, we literally can't do this without you. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you for your time and your talents. Um, we're so grateful. Uh, thank you to the venue. Isn't it beautiful? I'm so excited to be here. Love the venue. 
Um, and again, thank you to uh, the audience. I mean, please spread the word, listen to the podcast, share it with friends, uh, you know, and, and tell them to come to these events. Um, and if you are sitting in the audience going, hey, I could do that, please apply um, or talk to one of us and we'll kind of help you figure out how to apply. Um, we really want this to be a no barriers situation. So if you think you have a story and you have the, you know, willpower to get on stage, that's all you need. So please, please, please just let us know. Um, to May's point, if you aren't registered for fundraising day, you are missing out. So do that today. Um, and uh, you still have time to register. Uh, the bar will be open for a while. Please stay, mix, mingle, talk to the committee. Um, and, uh, have a great night. Thanks, everybody. Yeah.